Let's dive in uh, to God's word this morning. Let me pray. <clears throat> Father God, we come to you this morning, God, as your people with hope. Hope in a resurrected Savior, a resurrected Lord who breathes new life into sinners. God, as those people this morning, God, we pray God, that as we open up your word and we look to you, God, we look to the risen Jesus, God, that we would have hope and new life and what that new life means for us today as people, within our families, within our communities, and within our church. God, please be with us this morning. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. All of us at some point have lost someone that we've loved or will lose someone that we love. And the way that grief and sadness and sorrow looks is different for every person in every situation. And it is impossible to say that it is just not absolutely devastating to deal with the loss of a loved one. Because if you have lost a friend or a spouse or a child, it can be unbearable to deal with death. And that was no different 2,000 years ago when the Lord Jesus was nailed to a cross and died. His followers who had put their faith in him and their hope and their trust had to deal with for two days. Did we believe a lie? We loved him. We believed him. Could you imagine the way that Jesus' followers felt? in those days after watching the brutal death of their Savior. But what would it have felt like to be one of those followers and then to see him again? To see the risen Christ, the one that they have followed and cried with and have seen do amazing things. For two days, they thought, is he coming back? But to see him again, what would that have been like? Post-Easter, I think that's an important question, is what would an encounter with the resurrected Christ have looked like? If you have your Bible, go ahead and open up to Luke chapter 24, and we're going to look at one of the first encounters that Jesus has with two people who believed in him, and we're, we're going to look at what's called the road to Emmaus, we're going to spend all morning breaking this down and understanding what God is trying to communicate to us in his word. So Luke writes in chapter 24, verse 13, that very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them named Cleopas answered him, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened in these days? And he said to them, what things? And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, 
a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it as the woman, as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going farther, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now spent. So he went in to stay with them, and when he was at the table, he took the bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they did not recognize him, and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked on the road and while he opened the scripture? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem, and they found the eleven and those who were with them, and gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed. This is the word of God. So think about this moment again. Cleopas and his companion, we, we don't know if this is his wife or a friend, but as, as we see later, th- these were people who believed that Jesus was the Messiah. The one who was coming to redeem Israel. And they had seen and heard that Jesus was crucified and buried. And as they're leaving Jerusalem where Jesus was killed, their heads are low as they walk the seven miles back to Emmaus. Walking seven miles, I don't do that often, but it's about an hour and a half. About an hour and a half. And while these two were on their way, a man draws near to them. It's an interesting that he drew near to them. So the, the idea is that Jesus caught up to them. He was the one who initiated to them. And when Jesus approaches, for some reason, we don't know, the text doesn't tell us, but his identity is concealed from them. So while they knew who Jesus was and how he was killed, they were not able to recognize him as the Lord Jesus. And Jesus walks up to the two people, Cleopas being one of them, and says, what are you guys talking about? Normal question, probably. And Cleopas responds with the only way, and and I don't know if you ever have these moments in your household, whether with your spouse or a friend, when there is just major news that, have ha- that has happened in the world and you feel like everyone knows about it and then your spouse is like, I don't know what that is. And you're like, it's everywhere. This has happened. All people know about this. How do you not know? Well, imagine the single greatest moment in human history has happened. And this person comes up saying, 
what are you guys talking about? Cleopas responds, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know what's happened? Are you the only one? Jesus replies, well, what things? What, what is going on? And Cleopas says, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty indeed, rules, rulers delivered him up to be condemned and crucified, and he was the one to redeem Israel. And now we get more of a glimpse on why Cleopas was really sad. They believed that this man, Jesus, not just a friend who they loved, but was the Messiah. And it's hard for us to understand what that meant to these first century disciples. Because we have lived in the church age for 2,000 years and we know that Jesus is the Messiah. Many of you have heard that since the day you were born. But these men were still waiting. They were still waiting for the Messiah. They wanted a savior. They wanted their sins to be atoned for for life. This was their hope. And they believed this was the man to do it. And, he, and they thought he didn't do it. They thought he did not rise. And it's worth us asking a couple questions here. R.C. Sproul in his commentary of Luke said, this is one of the most ironic moments that we see in the New Testament. That Cleopas said, are you the only one who doesn't understand who Jesus is and what he's done? The irony being, no one understood more than the stranger that approached them. Because the stranger who approached Cleopas knew better than anyone what it was like to be Jesus. He knew what it was like to be betrayed by a friend, to be spit on and beaten and mocked, a crown of thorns placed on his head. He knew better than anyone what it was like to carry a tree up a hill and be nailed to it and suffer and die. Because the one that they were talking to was Jesus himself. He endured all of these things. And it's important for us to know that the Savior that we worship is not some distant God who does not know how to empathize with us in our pain and in our suffering. Because the reality is that in all of our lives, there's going to be some measure of pain and hurt and loss, and we worship a, a Savior who knows, who knows what it's like to be betrayed and to experience loss and death and pain and suffering. And because of that, he can empathize with us. And we can have hope in our lowest moments that we have a Savior who knows us and who loves us. But secondly, what was very important to know about Cleopas' reaction, his sadness, was our hope and his hope for us and our faith is all dependent on the resurrection. If the resurrection did not happen, we are wasting our time here on Sunday morning. We are wasting our time following an unresurrected Savior. If Jesus did not rise from the dead, Paul said, our preaching is useless and so is our faith. But Jesus did rise. Sunday did come. And as a result of that, sin and death were defeated on the cross. 
But our problem 2,000 years later is not the historical realities of the resurrection. That is an important question, and if that's something you do doubt, you should consider, did Jesus really rise from the dead? N.T. Wright wrote a fantastic book on it. But our problem is that we've become indifferent to the resurrection. Is the resurrection is something we celebrate once a year, and outside of that, it begins to have little to no difference on the way that we live our life and our faith. Because ultimately, our hope, as Pastor Jim talked about last week, is in the resurrection and the life that Christ offers in it. And the question for us to ask 2,000 years later, Cleopas's hope was in the resurrection. Ultimately, that hope is fulfilled when he interacts with Christ. But is your hope in the resurrection? Because if you're anything like me, it's, it's a lot easier for our hope and our affections to turn towards our careers and our IRAs and our vacations and our hobbies and the relationships that we have. When you lay in bed at night, head on the pillow, when all you have is your thoughts, no one else around you, is your hope in the resurrection. Are you staking your life on what Christ has done on your behalf? Or is your hope and trust placed in things that you're earning in this world? Because if Jesus did not rise from the dead, Cleopas had every reason to be disappointed and sad because his hope was in something that was passing away, that couldn't last. If your hope is in Christ, he has conquered death, and it is never passing away. Our ultimate hope in this life is in a resurrection one day. Not just in Christ, but ours to come. And for that, to be reunited with our loved ones who also place their faith in Christ. Our hope in this life is in the resurrection. And if you're anything like me, our hearts are prone to wander. They're prone to put faith and hope and trust in something else in this world. And it will kill you, quite literally. Turn your eyes upon Jesus and his resurrection. Cleopas goes on and says, Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back, saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us to the tomb and found it just as the woman had said, but him they did not see. And finally, Jesus begins to respond with authority. Oh, foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that Christ should suffer these things and enter into glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. There's a lot of times where preachers will say something along the lines of, this is the most important verse in the Bible, or this is my favorite verse in the Bible. You've probably heard Jim say that a number of times, or you've probably heard me say that a number of times, because there are countless moments in the Bible where we think, this is the most important thing you can know. But I do want to say, with some level of certainty, this is the greatest Bible study ever taught. 
that for a seven-mile journey, Jesus opened the scriptures to these two people and taught them the Old Testament and how it points to Jesus. And while I'm not going to try to be Jesus teaching you the Old Testament, I do think it's worth for us as Christians to say, what does the Old Testament tell us about Jesus? Because probably, if you're anything like me, sometimes the Old Testament can be intimidating. And there might be a couple verses that we read or some that are fantastic passages that give us hope, but what really does the Old Testament say about Jesus? We'll start like Jesus did with Moses in Numbers. The Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. And everyone who is bitten when he sees it shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. Jesus in John 3 references this and says, this is me. Similarly to Jesus, Moses had a serpent. Someone would be poisoned. He would look upon the bronze serpent and they would be able to live. In the same way you and I have been bitten with sin. We have a curse on us similar to that of poison. In our blood, we have sin. And Jesus says, I am that bronze serpent. If you look to me, you will live. It's worth us asking, are we looking to Christ like that? That we believe our life is dependent on gazing upon him on the cross and saying, my hope is in you and nothing else. Jeremiah, the prophets, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely, and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called, the Lord is our righteousness. Paul says, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Righteousness goodness, something that is what we are dependent on to have a relationship with God. The Bible tells us that we have no righteousness in and of ourselves, that we are dependent on an outside source. Martin Luther called it an alien righteousness. We need a righteousness outside of ourselves to make us whole. Jeremiah says that one day someone will come, a righteous one, We'll be able to impart righteousness on our behalf. And Paul tells us the fulfillment of that promise. That God made Jesus to become our righteousness on our behalf. So that when you put your faith in Christ, you obtain his righteousness on your behalf. And so that one day, when you stand before God, and theoretically, if he were to ask you, why, why should I let you in? What would you say? It's an important question. R.C. Sproul, when he was a part of Evangelism Explosion, would ask that question door to door. Many of you, if someone were to ask you, why should God let you into heaven? What would you say? Would you say, it's because I go to church. It's because I've been baptized. It's because I do a lot of good things. If that would be your answer, you'd be dependent on your own righteousness. Because what 2 Corinthians 5.21 is saying is that one day when we stand before God, our answer has got to be 
you shouldn't. If it were just left to me, I bring nothing to the table. But your son's righteousness is what my hope is in. His goodness, his purity, his holiness, not my own. Is that your hope? In the righteousness of Christ and what he's done on your behalf. 2 Samuel 7, 12 through 16, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with the fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. And he shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the son of men, but my steadfast love will depart from him. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. This is the Davidic covenant that's promised to David that one day through the line of David, someone will come. And an everlasting kingdom will be established. A kingdom that will never die in Christ. In Isaiah chapter 9, for us, a child is born. A son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Isaiah 53, I could keep going, but we'll be here all morning. And keep going, just say this. Do you love God's word? And do you believe the promises in it that point to Jesus from Genesis to Revelation, that ultimately the entire book in front of you is pointing to Christ. And Jesus is alive today, and so is his word. So is his word. So finally, in this interaction that Jesus has on the road to Emmaus, Cleopas says, please come stay with us. They go through this Bible study with, with Jesus. They don't know it's him at this point. Come eat with us, dine with us. We'll host you, come into my house. And Jesus breaks bread with them. And, and we don't know if this is uh, just a regular meal or if it's another institution of the Lord's Supper where he, where he serves them bread and wine. We're not sure, but all we know is that when they broke bread, Jesus vanished. And Cleopas and the other get up and they run as fast as they can to the disciples to tell them. But they do say something to each other. Did our hearts not burn within us when he opened the scriptures? This is really interesting language because it's almost identical to what the prophet Jeremiah says when he says, if I will not mention to him or speak any more in his name, there is in my heart as it were a burning fire shut up in my bones and I'm weary and I cannot hold it in. These men, when they spent time with Jesus, when he opened up his word with them, their hearts began to burn inside of them. And I think we have a couple options when we look at that text and we read those words. Because we might say, man, I wish that was true for me. I, I wish I could have that same experience where my, where my heart was burning for the Lord. And, and maybe some of you would say, that is happening in my life. That is happening for me. Or some of you are saying, I want that. And this, this morning, I want to leave you 
with this charge and say, Jesus is alive. And when you encounter him, that burning within your heart will happen. You will fall in love with the Lord and you will want to put nothing else in front of him. But there's a problem, right? The problem is our hearts are prone to wander. You can probably even look back and say, at one time in my life that was true. My faith was so strong that I was compelled to live for Christ with all of my bones, all of my spirit. My whole life I wanted to serve him, but that that was then, this is now. And, you know, slowly what will happen is our hearts will harden when we begin to put our trust and our hope in other things outside of Christ. Our faith will cool and Sunday mornings will seem like just another burden. Serving within the church seems unnecessary. Someone else will do it. Giving to the church seems insane. Why would I do that? I need this for myself. You don't talk about Jesus with your friends or your family or your kids. Slowly over time, your heart will harden and harden. And I just want to say, don't settle for this. Believer, don't settle for a hardened heart and a weakened faith. Our hearts are prone to wander, but we serve a God who loves us, who seeks after us, and is here today. And you can draw near to him as he is drawn near to you. Put your faith in Christ. Treasure him above all. Because I think Augustine was the one who said, if Christ is not first in your life, if you don't love him above all other things, then you don't love him at all. You don't know what Christ is calling you to. Is that the way you would describe your faith? That Christ is above all in my life. Because when he is, that will funnel down. And you will be a better parent and a better husband and a better wife when Christ is the treasure of your heart. Is Christ your treasure? Don't settle for a weakened faith. So we can look to this one short encounter, likely just two to three hours, when Cleopas and his companions' hearts burned as a result of the opening of the scriptures because God's word is alive to us. We might not have the physical Jesus speaking to us like they did, but we have his word inspired, inerrant, and full of life. Do you treasure it above all? And does your life reflect it? Let's pray. Lord God, I, I confess, God, that my heart is prone to wander. God, my heart is prone to leave the God I love. It is so quick to trust in temporary things for joy and satisfaction and peace, God, and I just pray for myself and for everyone else in this room, God, that our hearts would be directed towards Christ, God, that you would give us your spirit and that our hope would be placed in you and your work and not our own. 
Lord, we know that we need your help to do this. God, would you be with us? We love you and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.